<laughs> Welcome to SACPA. Uh, thank you for quieting down. Uh, I could have always outshowed you anyway, but then, uh, I'm Mary Shillington. I have the honor of being your moderator today. And uh, uh, I'm very excited about uh, our guest today. I uh, have a little bit of housekeeping. You noticed your basket on the table, put your $11 in there, please. We have the usual format, 12 to 12.30 with uh, uh, the presentation, lunch, you have half an hour to couple with the down from 12.30 to 1, and 1 o'clock, so we'll have the mic active, and you can ask your questions with your name and one question, no pontificating, and, uh, and I'll, I'll uh, monitor that quite closely, and, uh, and we're going to have a great session. Uh, the uh, cell phones, please tell, turn them off or it's a vibration. Uh, I always turn mine off because I can never get the other stuff. But anyway, uh, uh, that's, that's when you're in your 70s, you have, kind of have a little more trouble. Uh, so uh, I, I hope maybe some of you saw the Globe and Mail. Uh, PM ordered halt to refugee processing. Interesting. And so Ryan has read that and. Uh, uh, if it comes up in the question period, uh, he has some information about that. Uh, I'm, uh, he's consulting now. <laughs> uh, Ryan is, uh, as, as you, if you read your brochure, you know that he's the pastor at Lethbridge Mennonite Church. What you might not know is that when uh, Mennonite Central Committee uh, uh, raised the issue of Syrian refugees with all the Mennonite churches in Alberta, uh, he, the, their church started to spreading out to reach to people uh, uh, to get involved. And so he's been sort of the spoke, as they spoke here, uh, his, and his church here in, in Lethbridge, and he'll tell you more about that and how, how the whole thing has grown and grown and grown and, and to hear how people are, are so open to it. And Brian is uh, very keen and a good speaker, and so we're going to learn lots about uh, what the history of this group and also how we can be part of it and and just I'll say this right up front uh, there's brochures out there about the ecumenical social action group which is what this particular group is and also an opportunity if you want to make a donation right away there's another sheet out there and Barb stand up will you please Barb? Barb back there uh, we'll take your money and see if you get a receipt Okay, so uh, we want to have as much time for Ryan as possible, so I'll call Ryan Duick, the past pastor, Ryan Duick, up, please. Well, I have to admit, first of all, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see you here. It's good to be here. I have to admit that I felt a bit of discomfort this morning when I reread the, the brochure and what, all the things that I was going to explain for you today. Um, I am not, uh, I had the sinking feeling that I was being oversold. <laughs> I, I thought it'd be best to begin with a few caveats and qualifications. I'm not an expert on global geopolitical realities. Um, I'm not an expert on Canada's immigration policies. I'm not much of a player when it comes to partisan politics. What I am is a pastor, a writer, a storyteller, and a concerned citizen, and a human being. And, and these are the only qualifications that I have, that, that I've brought to this project. And, and I've learned some things about those other areas along the way, but uh, mostly what has led me from, from 
here today are just those simple those simple qualifications of just being a concerned citizen and a concerned human being who sees what's going on around the world and wants to do something to help. And so what I'm going to do today is tell a few stories. I want to tell you the story of the local sponsorship initiative that's begun here in Lethbridge, tell you a bit about how things have changed for us along the way, both with respect to government policies and with the shape of the group itself. I want to let you know where things are at now and how you can help, as Mary already said. I'll probably talk a little bit about some of the resistance we've encountered along the way. I hope that over the course of this, this talk that some of your questions that you came today to hear answers to will be answered, but if they're not, feel free to bring them up during the question period and I'll try to address them as best I can. So I thought that to begin with we should start in Syria. I realize that many of you, because you're here, know what's happening in Syria and are concerned about it, but I thought it might be worth just briefly sketching the basic contours of what's led to the present reality in this troubled nation. Way back in 2011, March of 2011, there were these nationwide protests that kind of rose up demanding President Assad's resignation. It was part of this whole Arab Spring movement that happened uh, and, and, and what's happening at the time. So that happened and then this, what followed was a descent into civil war. There were all these rebel brigades that began to form to battle the government forces to control various towns and cities in the countryside. And eventually in 2012, the fighting reached Damascus and Aleppo and some of the major centers in Syria, which led to mass displacement of human beings, which were caught in the middle of all this fighting. So just some stats that you are probably aware of, but just to make, it, make plain the extent of the crisis. Almost 4 million people have fled Syria since the start of the conflict back in 2011, making it one of the largest refugee exoduses in, re in recent history. The neighboring countries so far have borne the brunt of this crisis, with Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey struggling to accommodate this flood of new arrivals, and now Europe, of course. A further 7.6 million Syrians have been internally displaced within the country, bringing the total number of those forced to flee their homes to more than 11 million people. That's a third of the population of Canada. 11 million people who have been forced to flee their homes. Overall, there's an estimated 12.2 million people in need of humanitarian assistance inside Syria, including 5.6 million children, according to the United Nations. And of course, in recent weeks, we've seen an escalation and a complexification, if I can make a term up on the spot, of, of the conflict with Russia entering the fray and many different armed groups with competing interests firing across each other and of course, there are always people caught in the middle, many, many people caught in the middle whose lives are in danger. So that's the situation right now in Syria. Not news to most of you, I'm sure, but it, it just is a, just kind of a reminder of the desperation, and the, or the, the desperate nature of the situation over there right now. So in response to some of these realities, our church decided that we should do something. Way back in, in January of this year, our little church had its AGM. And we sat around tables, mostly like this, in our church basement, and we asked ourselves, what do we want to pursue as a church in this coming year? And we made lists at each table, and at or near the top of each list that came back to the broader group was refugee sponsorship from Syria. We also decided that we didn't want to do it by ourselves. We thought it would be better to work with other churches in our community. We would accomplish more, and it would be a good way to build bridges between two churches. So I sent out an email to a group of churches whose 
whose ministers I meet regularly with here in Lethbridge, and some of our members made phone calls to churches and people they knew in, in other communities, and just to gauge the interest, take the temperature of our community. We then invited representatives from Mennonite Central Committee, which is the relief and development wing of the broader Mennonite family of churches, to come down from Calgary and have an information meeting where we would learn more about what's involved in refugee sponsorship. How does it work? What do we do? How much money do we need? How long does it take? All these questions that are, that are uh, on everybody's mind when they begin a process like this. So MCC came and they, we had a, a meeting where probably about 40 or 50 people were present from a wide variety of churches. And they, they gave us the, the lowdown of what's involved and we were encouraged to go forward. And out of that meeting, we had sort of three churches that, that decided to pursue this together. Ourselves, of course, and then McKillop and Coldale United. We, they were later joined by Southminster United not long after. So they, these churches sort of formed the initial impetus to see what we could do to bring some refugees to Lethbridge. We formed a steering committee and we began to collect pledges from our churches in, and this is the easiest sales job I have ever had in a church in my life. We, we didn't do a, one fund. Our fundraising amounted to, do you want to give to the Syrian refugees? Yeah. And we had these, these families paid for before we could even, or, or pledged, before we could even believe it, a few months. So we were initially prepared to wait for names to become available on what's called the Blended Visa Office Referral List, or the BVOR list, which is a a list of refugee families that have been approved by the Canadian government for sponsorship. So maybe it's good here to just have a few brief words about refugee sponsorship. Essentially, as I understand it, and I'm still learning as I said, there's two kinds of refugee sponsorship. There's what's called named and unnamed. So, so named sponsorship is when you name the family or person or people that you want to bring over. Unnamed is where you pick where you have no connections to the nation and you pick off of a list that you find on an online uh, database. Unnamed sponsorship is what we thought we were going to be doing because we didn't know anybody in Syria and we thought we'd just have to wait. Um, in this case, the government covers part of the cost for the first six months. In a, in a named case, you're on the hook for the whole works. All sponsorship requires what's called a sponsorship hold, agreement holder which in our case is Mennonite Central Committee, Alberta. And an agreement holder basically has a contract with the government of Canada to, to bring refugees into the country. So initially we were prepared to wait until names became available. But the reality at that point was there simply were none. There were no, it was incredible. We would look across the ocean and we would see these, these masses of refugees in these camps waiting for a better opportunity and a better future, but there was no names to pick from because the government was processing claims at what can only be described as a glacial pace. So we had all this money raised and all this goodwill and nowhere to direct it, which was an incredibly frustrating reality, but it was true. Then an opportunity literally fell into our laps. In April, there was a group of young adults from around the world that gathered in Alberta that were brought there by MCC Alberta. They were just touring around Alberta churches, doing a drama presentation, telling their stories, Etc. It was called Planting Peace. And so two people on this group of people from around the world happened to be from Syria. One of them was a priest at a Syrian Orthodox church in the city of Homs, which you may have heard in the news recently was the subject of a, a recent Russian bombing uh, campaign. 
I was actually texting this priest while the bombs were falling in, in homes last week. It was, it was incredible. Anyways, this priest, uh, we talked that night, and I heard about the reality on the ground where they lived, and told me incredible stories about walking into his church and having bullets flying past his head. It was kind of just daily life for him. We kept in contact after he left back to Syria, and a few months later, he contacted me and asked if we would be willing to sponsor two families from his parish that were living in Lebanon as refugees. We still had no options on the, on the BBOR list, and so he said, of course. Let's try. So we jumped at the opportunity, we filled up the paperwork, we began to collect furniture and donations, and these two families, to make a long story short, are now at the last stages of interviews and um, the final interview with the embassy in Beirut, and we're, we're hoping, we're really hoping that they could be here before Christmas. We're not, I, I say hoping and I emphasize hoping because we never know um, when it'll happen, but for, for sure. But that's what we've been told by MCC Alberta, that it could happen before Christmas, and that's, our, and that's our hope. So, so far so good. This is all feeling very good and manageable. And then, this happened. In early September. And that changed everything. Um, this picture, and I, I know this picture is one of us, several pictures, but um, there's one much more heartbreaking picture of, of little Alan lying right with his face down on the beach. I didn't want to put that up because I had a hard time looking at it. But this picture um, changed things. And it, all of a sudden we had this incredible outpouring of response. People saw this picture and they, and they, and they began to probably Google Lethbridge and Syrian refugees and they came to our Facebook page and they started flooding us with, with requests about how to help and what to do and we were getting interview requests from TV stations and radio and newspaper. And so our little group began to be sort of this, this focal point of much more interest in our community about how to, how to respond to this crisis. So we decided in response to open up our next regularly scheduled steering committee meeting, which to that point had been six or seven of us, to anybody in the, in the public who wanted to know more about getting involved or how to help. And so we had over 30 people at our next meeting. And from that meeting, we began to add more groups to our initial group. Coaldale Mennonite Church joined and will be sponsoring a family from the same parish as the two that we are bringing, these first two groups. A group from the University of Lethbridge and three Anglican churches who have called themselves ULAST. That's an acronym that I won't even attempt it right now, but you can maybe you can figure it out by looking at the initials there. So University of Lethbridge faculty and um, some Anglican churches. Erin Phillips is a chaplain there at the, at the university, and she also works with Anglican churches in Coldale and Tabor. She's sort of the liaison there. Is Erin here? I thought. There she is. Hi, Erin. Um, so she's been working with that group. We also had a group of doctors, and um, Parveen Bura from the, from the hospital has put together a group of doctors and healthcare workers and family members who are gonna take, who are gonna also work to bring a family here. So now we have five groups that are working to bring families here. These, the, the top groups are working with this parish in homes. And I'll say a little bit more about these bottom two and, and another opportunity that, that recently fell into our laps. After September, the government changed the rules a little bit and they decided to speed things up a little bit and so we were hopeful that there would be some more BVOR cases available. 
But the reality was, they still were, there still weren't many getting through, and the ones that were getting through were snapped up almost instantly because there's so many groups across Canada that are ready to go. And, 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 and because we live in the West, and the cases go up on Monday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, they seem always to end up in Ontario. <laughs> so by the time the, the MCC folks in Calgary opened up their computers on Monday morning, they were all gone. So another opportunity fell into our laps a few weeks ago. A young woman made contact with us through Facebook. She's from Syria, but she's been a Canadian citizen for six years. She's married to an Iraqi, and they came over as refugees. And for, for the last three years or four years, she's been trying to find a way to get her family to Canada. Until two weeks ago, nobody had even listened to her story. And so, a few weeks ago, Erin and I went to, to the college and sat down with her and listened to her story. It was a heartbreaking story. She told us the story of her brothers who had, who had been arrested and one of her brother-in-laws had disappeared and has never come back. They don't know where he is or if he's even alive. Another brother and his family have made that torturous three-month journey from, from Syria to Libya to Italy to um, eventually to Sweden. Two other brothers are living as, and their families are living as refugees in Lebanon right now, living kind of a hands-to-mouth existence. Her parents are also in Lebanon. She's told us stories of uh, having to bribe officials to let her brothers uh, do X or Y, trying to get certain places around there. It's a desperate story and a desperate family that are trying to get be reunited here in Lethbridge. Now, her siblings all have refugee status. They all have all their documents. They're ready to go. They just need someone to help. And so, to make a, a much longer story short, I know that, uh, I've got a bit of time yet. Um, this bottom group, is we're, we're exploring the possibility of these two groups working together to bring what is a very large family to Lethbridge, to be reunited with, with their, their daughter and her family here. It would be seven adults and seven children. Actually, no, I'm wrong, nine adults and 10 children. There are, there's, there's a brother that's in Syria that they're hoping they can get out and to bring his family here as well. We're still in exploratory stages of this. We're having a meeting tonight to maybe hammer out some details, but we're really hoping that we can help this woman. Um, it was heartbreaking to hear her almost apologize at the end of our conversation for being Muslim, because she wasn't sure if it would help her if she was a Muslim. And that was, that was something else to hear. We assured her that was not the case. So, what started as a group of three churches looking to sponsor two families has grown into this loose, kind of ad hoc affiliation of at least five groups that are looking to bring nearly 40, 40 plus people to Lethbridge from Syria. We come from a broad range of religious and non-religious perspectives, but what holds us together, I think, is our common concern for the human suffering that we see in Syria. We're also held together by MCC, who's working as an agreement holder for all of these groups. And MCC, I have to say, is very excited about what's happening in Lethbridge. They've told me personally that, that um, they're overwhelmed right now with requests, but they're making our city a priority because they're so excited by the collaboration that's happening here <coughs> between churches and between church, churches and community members. And I think we're going to need to share information and resources going forward. And so we're going to, we're going to stay together, whatever that looks like. We don't have any formal board or anything like that. We kind of just get together as needed. And we're becoming friends, which is another great side benefit of, of, of this whole project. And we're hoping this can be a start of something special here in Lethbridge, that we can bring many families from Syria to Lethbridge. 
So I, I want to conclude with some of the maybe a more unhopeful, but it'll be it'll be hoped at the end. Don't worry. Um, some of the negative feedback we've been getting. Um, and as I talk about this last section here, I'm going to be putting some pictures up, and they're just going to be cycling through. I'm not putting these pictures up to tug at your heartstrings. At least, not that's not the only reason I'm doing it. Maybe if that's a side thing. <laughs> but um, I'm putting these pictures up because I want us always to remember that these are human beings with stories. They're not generic refugees or other people in another part of the world. And so these are just going to roll through as I talk on this last part here. This has mostly been a pretty feel-good story, and it's been a really rewarding thing to be a part of. But I have to say, and it won't surprise many of you to hear this, that there are not there are more sentiments out there in our community, in our nation, and in our world that are a bit more negative towards this this sort of initiative and this uh, this project. We've encountered a bit of anti-refugee rhetoric. We've encountered a bit of anti-Muslim rhetoric. Some of this has come from conversations in our community over dinner tables and coffee shops and churches. Some of this has happened online. A lot of it's happened online. I have received hate mail for the first time in my life, <laughs> which was an interesting experience. I had one man tell me that you Mennonite can get the hell out of our country and take the Muslim trash with you. So that was a, quite a surprise in my inbox one day. I wish I was joking, but that's true. I wrote a, an article a few weeks, a weeks ago online about my conviction that those of us who claim any allegiance at all to Jesus have a duty to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, even if we mistakenly think of them as enemies. And I've never received such an angry response to anything I've written in nine years of, of, of blogging. The post has been viewed almost a quarter million times by now, and it's, um, it's, a lot of it was, I think a lot of those hits were very angry hits. And so this is, and I've heard stories from other people in our committee who have encountered this from family members and from people in churches and people in the community. People, people are afraid. People are, don't want these people to come. And so I've been thinking a lot lately about how we can encourage better conversations and more hospitable responses around this issue. Not even necessarily as Christians, but as citizens, as human beings. Uh, and a story that I, that I want to end with here today is, is a few weeks ago I was sitting in an MCC meeting with a, a man named Saulo Padilla, who was an immigration educator with MCC USA. And he shared his own refugee story of the journey from Guatemala to Canada, the many twists and turns that his story took along the way. And he made one comment that stuck with me. He talked about the difficulty of coming from Guatemala to Calgary and about how the first few months were incredibly hard. And eventually he found this tiny little Hispanic church that gave him the welcome that he needed. And he said they knew how to embrace the stranger because they had the heart of a stranger themselves. And that sentence stuck with me. They had the heart of a stranger. I thought, what does it take for us to develop the heart of a stranger? I think what, what Saulo was saying was that those people who knew firsthand the experience of being outsiders the experience of the desperation and loneliness that come along with being separated from all that is familiar and all that gives one meaning and security in the world, that anybody who knows this experience well has a heart of a stranger. They have a heart that's willing to make room. And it made me wonder about how much of the polarizing rhetoric that we hear out there right now could have this one simple truth behind it. Many of us, particularly those my generation and younger, have no idea what it means to be a stranger. 
We've never been strangers in any meaningful sense. Many of us have moved to new cities. We've had to find new churches and jobs and social circles, etc. These are trivial, but they're not really the same thing. They're mostly the choices that are exercised within the parameters of privilege. But have I, have we, been strangers in the same sense as some of these people on the screen? Have we been flogged to distant shores by violence and political instability and poverty? Have we been strangers in the sense of arriving in strange lands with few possessions, with no language, and years of trauma in the rearview mirror? Have we ventured forth in contexts where few people look or sound like us? Where the customs are incomprehensible, where the beliefs are impenetrable? Have we been strangers in any sense deep enough to produce the kinds of hearts that we need to welcome a stranger? And yet, those of us, some of you have, I know this, some of you have. This is your experience. I think those of us who live in this country must also admit that we are all strangers on some level, even if it's a few generations removed. Unless we are indigenous people, we are all immigrants here. All of us, all of our ancestors came from somewhere else and at one point had a need for someone to make room. So I think about what it would take for us as a city, as churches, as a country, to develop the heart of a stranger in this present cultural moment with so much polarizing discourse among Canadians and Christians and others about this refugee crisis and what it asks of us. How can we move beyond some of the reflexive responses we have to better conversations? I wonder if it could be as simple as looking a few generations back into our own stories and remembering that all of us are a part of the story of the stranger on some level. I wonder if we need to just be reminded that once this was us, or our grandparents, who needed someone to make room. I wonder if the heart of a stranger could be much closer to us if we would choose to remember and to imagine differently than we, than we do often. I know that people here come from diverse perspectives, but for me as a Christian, I don't have to look very far in our scriptures to see these two themes of imagination and memory that resound off the pages of the Bible that I have in my office. In the book of Deuteronomy, the divine command to care for the stranger is directly tied to the fact that the people of Israel were strangers once. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sums up all the law and all the prophets in one simple commandment. Do to others as you have done to you. The former in Deuteronomy urges us to remember better. The latter tells us to imagine better. And I think that both of these things, memory and imagination, are going to help us to have better conversations. Because I think all of us, whatever our perspectives, as citizens and as human beings, need to be the kinds of people who remember and who imagine in hopeful and hospitable ways if we're ever going to develop the right kinds of hearts that can welcome the strangers that are in desperate need of a hospitable place. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs>